0: The Baltimore Orioles are right in this AO wildcard race because they keep beating the Blue Jays and specifically Ryan Mountcastle keeps beating the Blue Jays and it's surprising a lot of people but has the Orioles' success surprised their own front office as well? We'll break that all down coming up on this episode of the Locked On Orioles podcast. You are Locked On Orioles, your daily Baltimore Orioles podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Hey there, Orioles fans. Today is Tuesday, August 16th, 2022. And welcome back in to the Locked On Orioles podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. As always, I'm your host, Connor Newcomb. And coming up on today's episode, we're going to start by recapping an Orioles victory as they beat the Blue Jays 7-3. to On Monday night at the Rogers Center in Game 1 of a pivotal three-game series against the Toronto Blue Jays, I'll get you the five things you need to know from that one that included more dominance by Ryan Mountcastle against the Jays. Then we'll take a look at the Orioles as a whole, how surprising they've been to get to 60-55 and so far this season, why they haven't just surprised Major League Baseball, they haven't just surprised, frankly, us the fans, did they surprise their own front office by doing this and how that has impacted maybe some of the decisions that have been made regarding this Orioles team so far in the second half. But that's all coming up on this episode of the Locked On Orioles podcast. And before we get to it, Just want to thank you, the listener, for making Locked on Orioles your first podcast listen of the day. We're free and available on all podcast listening platforms, whether it be Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. If you could leave a five-star rating and a review on those apps, it really helps out the pod. And of course, we're here on YouTube as well on the Locked on Orioles YouTube page. We thank you all so much for getting us over 1,000 subscribers. And if you didn't listen or watch Monday's episode of the podcast, remember last week I said... If Locked on Orioles on YouTube gets over a 1,000 subscribers, we'll be doing a giveaway. Well, the giveaway is right here. And that's right. It is the Cedric Mullins 30-30 bobblehead. It can be yours in just two easy steps. Number one, subscribe to Locked on Orioles on YouTube. And number two, leave in the YouTube comments of either this episode or any of the five episodes this week your favorite moment that you've seen live at Oriole Park at Camden Yards in the 30 years it has existed. And if you haven't been to Oriole Park, that's okay. You can still perfectly be a fantastic Orioles fan. Leave us a comment with the favorite moment that you've ever seen on TV happen at Oriole Park at Camden Yards. I'll take all those responses after Friday, randomly draw a winner to win the Cedric Mullins 30-30 bobblehead. And again, thank you for making Locked on Orioles your first listen of the day, and for your first listen today, let's start with an Orioles victory. Orioles seven, Blue Jays three, in Game One of a three-game series in Toronto on Monday night. As the O's a big win in the wild card standings with the victory, they move to sixty and fifty-five on the season. Blue Jays drop to sixty-one and fifty-three. And unfortunately for the Orioles, the Yankees decided that they, you know even though they play in a Mickey Mouse ballpark, didn't want to score any runs on Monday night. So they lost the Rays 4-0, which was unfortunate for the Orioles. As I am recording, the Mariners lead the Angels 2-1, and the White Sox have a 4-2 lead over the Astros in the ninth. The Twins lead the Royals 4-2 in the ninth. So other things around the wildcard standings, not at all going the Orioles' way. But what they were able to do is come a little closer to Toronto. So they'll still be a game and a half behind both Tampa and Toronto, who are now tied at the moment uh, for this potentially final wildcard spot. But if there is a Seattle loss, the Orioles would be just one game back of the Mariners. But I'm going to get you the five things you need to know from the Orioles' 7-3 win over the Blue Jays. And the first thing you need to know, of course, is that Ryan Mountcastle just continues to haunt the Toronto Blue Jays. And, you know, he had been in a pretty rough stretch in the second half of the season. And what got him out of that slump? Well, the two games that the Orioles played against the Blue Jays at Camden Yards last Monday and Tuesday when Ryan Mountcastle just went off and the Orioles won both of those games. Well, they get back to Toronto here against the Blue Jays. And what does Ryan Mountcastle do? Well, he continues to hit. And this is after getting hit on the wrist by a pitch in Saturday's game. Because of that, he was out of the lineup on Sunday when the Orioles were almost no hit by Drew Rasmussen. He re-enters the lineup Monday, and what does he do? Well, he homers against the Blue Jays as he seemingly always does. It was a third inning blast for Ryan Mountcastle, a two-run shot that put the Orioles up 3-0 at the time off of Blue Jays starter Yusei Kikuchi, and that ball was launched. 109.3 miles per hour off the bat, traveled 417 feet to left field after Anthony Santander, two-out walk, made it a two-run home run for Mountcastle, and it was his 14th home run in his career Against the Blue Jays in 32 games now against Toronto, Mountcastle has 14 home runs. He's hitting 360 against the Blue Jays and he has a career 1160 OPS in his 32 games against Toronto. That is a ridiculous number for Ryan Mountcastle against the Blue Jays. And if you want to put the power in perspective, he's got 14 homers against the Blue Jays. The most he has behind that against any other team is eight home runs against the Red Sox. And then he doesn't have more than five homers against any other team in Major League Baseball since his career started midway through the shortened 2020 season. I mean, this guy just dominates the Blue Jays. And it's awesome to see. Doesn't matter if he comes in in a slump. Doesn't matter if he comes in after missing a day with injury. He just continues to hit this Blue Jays team and this Blue Jays pitching staff. And again, the home run was his only hit of the day for Ryan Malcastle, but he also drew a walk in this game and ended up with a one-for-three. Actually, drew two walks in this game, I should say. One-for-three with the two walks, the homer, the two RBIs. Did strike out twice as well, but just mashing the baseball against the Blue Jays. Second thing you need to know from this one is that the other Ryan also had a big day for the Orioles. Ryan McKenna picked up his first-ever three-hit game in his Major League career in this one. McKenna hitting in the leadoff spot in this game, getting the start in center field with the Blue Jays having a lefty in Kikuchi on the mound. Brandon Hyde once again choosing to sit Cedric Mullins against a left-hander. Cedric, who has been pretty putrid against left-handed pitching this year, despite being you know really solid against righties, has not been good against lefties. A couple times, Hyde has just hit him further down in the lineup against lefties. This time, though, he plays McKenna, who has been great against left-handers this year. And McKenna came through three for five with two doubles, an RBI, and a run scored in this game. All three of those hits, he had three hard-hit balls on the day. His big RBI came in the big three-run fourth inning for the Orioles, had an RBI double. And he put some good swings on the ball from that leadoff spot. And he did not get taken out of the game. You know, there was not a point when, you know, the Blue Jays went to the bullpen. They ended up bringing in four righties out of the pen after the lefty, Kikuchi. And McKenna stayed in the entire game and faced some righties as well. And Cedric Mullins did enter defensively for Anthony Santander in the ninth inning when the Orioles closed it out. But that was all of the field that Mullins saw. McKenna played the entire game, just moved from center to left field defensively in the ninth inning. And that's big for him. Not only is it his first career three-hit game, it's his first ever game with multiple extra base hits, as he had the two doubles on Monday night. And I gotta say, don't look now, but Ryan McKenna is hitting 271 with a 718 OPS this year. Now, I wouldn't start him regularly over Mullins, Hayes, or Santander at this point, and I would still like to see Kyle Stowers come up and get his shot in the outfield. But Ryan McKenna is showing that he's maybe more than just a fourth outfielder, defensive replacement, pinch runner guy. He is hitting well, especially against lefties, and is turning into an offensive weapon for the Orioles. Third thing you need to know from this Orioles 7-3 win over the Blue Jays, we stick with the offense. And the O's offense working the count in this game and drawing some walks was really huge, especially after what happened on Sunday. Of course, the Orioles had Drew Rasmussen just dominating them in Tampa on Sunday. He took a perfect game into the ninth inning before Jorge Mateo broke it up with a leadoff double in the ninth. But the big thing with Rasmussen was he wasn't throwing any pitches. I mean, he was under 80 pitches Through eight perfect innings against the Orioles' offense on Sunday. I think the craziest number was when he was through five perfect innings, he had thrown only 44 pitches to get through those five perfect innings. The Orioles were trying to attack the first pitch, weren't working counts, and it wasn't working out. Well, they certainly worked counts in this game. They drew six walks as a team, which, you know, you compare it, they had just eight hits in their seven runs. They almost had as many walks as as they had hits in this game. And, you know, they did still strike out more than they walked in this ball game. ended up with eight strikeouts. But the six walks is still, there's only been three games this year for the Orioles in which they have walked more than six times. They have two seven-walk games, and they have one 10-walk game, which was that crazy walk fest in April when they walked it off on a walk-off walk against Aroldis Chapman and the Yankees in extra innings. But six walks, a good number for the Orioles this year. They got two from Anthony Santander, two from Ryan Mountcastle, one from Jorge Mateo, and one from Taron Vavra in this one. And I just like what I saw in the approach. And after their worst offensive game of the year on Sunday, they turned around and put up seven runs. They, They got a lead early, one in the first, two in the third, three in the fourth, another in the fifth. Yeah, they did not score in the final four innings of this game, but they built themselves a big enough lead with their approach at the plate to come out with this win in Toronto. Fourth thing you need to know from this one, as we turn to the pitching side, is that Kyle Bradish, who got the start, was simply his usual chaotic self for the Orioles on the mound. His final line: he goes four and two thirds innings, allowing three runs on six hits, strikes out five, walks four, allows a home run, throws ninety-six pitches, and can't even finish the fifth. And now he did get squared up a little bit in this game. Eight hard hit balls against Bradish now with a six point three eight ERA, but. It's just wild to watch him pitch. You know, I think the third inning was really just the encapsulation of Kyle Bradish as a pitcher. You know, he had thrown two scoreless to start the game. The Orioles had just gotten him the Mount Castle homer. O's leading three nothing heading into the bottom of the third, and what does Kyle Bradish do? Well, he starts by walking the number nine hitter, Danny Jansen, on four pitches. Then the leadoff man for the Blue Jays comes up, and George Springer he doubles. Then he gets 0-2 on Vladimir Guerrero and doesn't really throw any more pitches very close to the zone. Walks Guerrero, so bases loaded with nobody out. Then Lourdes Gurriel, a two-run single up the middle, makes it a 3-2 game. And then all of a sudden, Bradish just locks in, strikes out Teoscar Hernandez. A pickoff error makes it first and third with one out. And then he gets Bo Bichette to ground into a 6-4-3 double play to end the inning and keep the O's up 3-2. It was a wild, wild third inning. Ended up giving up one more run on a Vladdy Jr. solo home run in the fifth and then, you know, let two runners on with two outs and did not get out of the fifth inning. But it's just real up and down. And again, it's five strikeouts, but it's four walks and the stuff is super erratic. And, you know, we only had eight whiffs on the day on 39 swings, but seven of those eight whiffs came from the slider, which he threw a lot. 47 fastballs, 32 sliders, and then just 11 curveballs and 8 changeups mixed in. But the slider was working all day. The velo was up on that pitch. It sat, you know, 87, 89 plus on the day. looked good. The fastball was eh, a little erratic at times. They didn't really know where it was going. But that's kind of the Kyle Bradish experience. I still believe in him. As a guy for the Orioles, but right now he looks like just a five-and-dive guy, somebody who you hope you can get five innings out of him. He's going to throw close to 100 pitches in five innings, and you hope he strikes out enough guys and limits the walks to keep you in games. And That's who Bradish is right now. The stuff is good. If he figures it all out, he's going to be a great pitcher. That hasn't happened yet, but I still think he's one of the Orioles' best five options. So you keep sending him out there, and he keeps being chaotic on the mound for the Orioles. And the fifth and final thing you need to know from the Orioles' 7-3 win over the Blue Jays is that, well, after Bradish left the game, the Orioles' bullpen simply did it again. And it was Brian Baker who was the first to come out of the pen. It's a 7-3 game, two on and two out in the bottom of the fifth, and Baker gets one pitch. Matt Chapman pops up to end the inning. Baker gets a 1-2-3-6, ends up retiring all four batters he faced with two strikeouts. Then Dylan Tate had one of his better appearances of the season. Inning and in two thirds scoreless, one hit, two Ks, no walks. Had that slider just dancing everywhere. CNL Perez threw one pitch and got a ground out to end the eighth inning. And then Felix Bautista did allow a hit and a walk in the ninth inning, but got a 5 4 3 double play to end the game and secure the Orioles win. And that's what the O's bullpen has done all year. Braddish, yeah, wasn't great. Didn't get, you know, super deep into this start. But Orioles bullpen gives them four and a third scoreless innings to secure this win and get a little bit closer to Toronto in this AL wildcard race. But, you know, the Orioles are certainly surprising the Blue Jays with how they've played them this year and how they've played really in general this year. I mean, the Orioles are now 5-2 and two against Toronto so far this season. They played really well against a really talented Blue Jays team. And they've not just surprised the Blue Jays, but the rest of the AL wildcard teams, the rest of the AL East Tech. They've surprised the rest of baseball. They've surprised me. In no way did I think the Orioles would be 60-55 and 55 at this point. But there's also the question, did they surprise their own front office? I don't think the front office thought, even in their wildest dreams, this team could be 60-55. and 55, But they are now. So how has that mindset and the initial plan for Mike Elias and his guys, how has that affected some of the moves that have been some head scratchers, some making more sense, but how has all of that impacted the Orioles' moves over the last few weeks? I'll try to break that down here coming up next. But first, got to tell you about Built Bar. And you know the original Built Bars, these protein bars covered in 100% chocolate, all the delicious flavors that Built has. You know, you've heard about them a lot on this podcast, but if you haven't tried Built Bar Puffs yet, you are depriving yourself of one of life's greatest joys. And guess what? There's a new flavor. Are you ready? It's delicious, indulgent cookie dough. Covered in chocolate, that's right. Built has done it again. Cookie dough chunk puffs are only 160 calories. They have a whopping 15 grams of protein in them. They're the first ever protein-infused marshmallow, and of course, they're covered in 100% Real chocolate. It means they're healthy and they're tasty. Just so delicious. So go to built.com right now to get your hands on the Cookie Dough Chunk Puff. And if you use the promo code LOCKEDON15, you'll get 15% off your order. Again, that is promo code LOCKEDON15 to get 15% off at built.com. So the Orioles beat the Blue Jays 7-3 on Monday night in Game 1 of the three-game series. And they continue to just shock the world this season. You know, a game and a half out of a playoff spot, sixty and 55 right there in the thick of the race in mid-August. Less than two months to go in the season, and the Orioles are right there. And it shocked a lot of us. But the question I wanted to look at here on today's episode really is, has it shocked the Orioles' front office too? Like, how much has this team truly surprised Mike Elias and his staff? Because as we know from what the Orioles did this offseason— I mean, their biggest moves were signing Jordan Lyles and Rugnet Odor. I don't think they quite expected to compete this year. They didn't add much to a team that went 52-110 and in the 2021 season and had the worst record in baseball. Yeah, I think they knew they'd get Adley Rutschman and... D.L. Hall and hopefully Grayson Rodriguez and some of these other prospects to the big leagues, and they hoped some of their younger players would take a step. I think all of us thought the Orioles would win more than 52 games. Heck, I even did predict that the Orioles would lose less than 100, but I don't think anybody saw them doing any better than maybe a 92-93 loss team, which would have been a great improvement from 110 losses, but still not anywhere close to a winning ball club. Well, here they are at 60-55 and and are in a playoff race. And uh, they are three wins away from securing, they will not lose 100 games this season. They got their sights on something way better than just avoiding 100 losses. But when you look at what the Orioles have done recently, just with some of their roster moves and the way they've constructed these rosters, the way they have handled their prospects, it did make me kind of wonder, you know, how much has this surprised Mike Elias? And not even just the season as a whole. You know, obviously, with the rough start in April, the better May, and then the hot June, the hot July, and you get here. But even how the team has done post-All-Star break and post-trade deadline. Because even if you were someone who was very optimistic on the Orioles and you know thought they could make a run like this, you have to look at their roster, compared to the rest of the rosters, especially in this AL wildcard race, and think, well, the Orioles are going to fall off the cliff at some point. At some point, they're going to have a long losing streak that's just going to take them out of this race. And instead, they've had winning streaks that have kept them in this race. Has it surprised Mike Elias too? And it, it may have. And I'm not, I don't want to portray this as a super, you know, hit podcast against Mike Elias, how he didn't believe in these Orioles at all, and now he's panicking and doing things. But I just didn't want to point out that His plan coming into this year, he certainly had a plan. And he had a team that was going to win more than the 52 games it won last year. But he certainly had a plan this year. And that plan was going to be stuck to whether the Orioles were going to win 50 games or whether the Orioles were going to win 70 games. But he didn't plan for the Orioles to win 85 or maybe more games and be in the hunt in mid-August. So let's start with D.L. Hall because... The handling of DL Hall this weekend really made me think about this topic as a whole. Now, we know Hall, it was announced he was going to come up and make his major league debut. That was announced Friday. He gets activated on Saturday and he makes the start. Varying results, five runs over three and two thirds. Wasn't his best outing. Did strike out six batters. And the Orioles, you know, it had been reported that they were planning on putting him in the bullpen after that. So everyone thought, okay. He's going to come up and start. I was fully behind this, as I talked about in this podcast yesterday. You know, you, you get him his major league debut when he knows he's going to pitch. He knows he's coming up. He's pitching on this certain day. And then because of the crazy good stuff, fastball up to 100, sweeping slider, wipeout slider, you put him in the bullpen in a playoff race for the rest of the year. And I thought that made perfect sense. I thought the Orioles were going to handle that very well. And then instead, they optioned D.L. Hall back to AAA after the game. And the reasoning was that they wanted to get him acclimated to a bullpen role in AAA, and then when the 15 days were up, you know, which takes us all the way to August 29th, when he could come back to the big leagues, then he would, as a reliever, and he would help the Oriole bullpen in September. And while I get that, I didn't really get, as I talked about yesterday, why they would have to move him to the bullpen in A. why they just couldn't put him in the bullpen in the majors right now and have him adjust to that role and kind of some low leverage spots early and then ease him into being a big piece of the bullpen. And, you know, there was probably a different initial plan for DL Hall. Now, I think it hurt that he had, you know, those three or four starts that went horribly, you know, it's different parts of the season probably delayed him getting the big leagues. They wanted him to have a better start in AAA right before he came to the bigs. But you have to think, if the Orioles are truly a bad team, if they were a bad team again this year, even if they're better than the 52 and 110, if they're still a team out of the race, you have to think they either, A, even if they did call them up right now, even if they did, on you know, in a, let's say, an alternate universe when the Orioles are bad this year, even if they did call them up to make that start on August 13th, you would think they would either keep them in the rotation for the rest of the year because they're a bad team, the wins and losses still don't matter, And you want to get a look at D.L. Hall as a starter through the rest of the season and kind of some lower leverage spots because he's pitching for a bad team. Or you would say, well, the Orioles have been bad all year. There's not as much pressure to bring up the top prospects. We leave him in AAA for the rest of the year, work on what he wants to work on, and he competes for a spot in spring training next year. That seems to be the plan or what was probably the plan for Mike Elias. And I would have to say the plan may have been all along get him up into the rotation when we think he's ready, hopefully in August, and then just keep him in the rotation the rest of the year. But the Orioles being good has changed that plan. That's kind of my point here, is that did they get a little flustered by the O's being this good? Because when you are this good, and you have a dominant bullpen, and you have a starting rotation that needs help, but has been good enough at times. And when you have a guy in D.L. Hall who has this electric stuff, doesn't know where it's going sometimes and needs a little more seasoning before he's ready to be a good major league starting pitcher, but could be a crazy good weapon out of the bullpen. He's always been talked about. We talked about it on this pod, how even the floor for him as a major leaguer is a really good late inning reliever because that crazy stuff, you know, a la Josh Hader. So when you're this good... You do like what the Rays maybe did with David Price or what the Cardinals did with Adam Wainwright early in his career. You bring him up and put him in the bullpen and let him throw the gas for an inning or two. And then you work him back into a starter over the next year or two. So that makes the most sense. But maybe the Orioles weren't planning on that because they just couldn't foresee a situation where the Orioles were 16-55 right now. Do I blame them? Well, not really, because the way they built this roster, this team was not supposed to be anywhere close to five games over 500 at this point. So it's just interesting to see how they seem to be tweaking the plan as they go, really for the first time. As you see Hall go back down and they say they're going to bring him back up. I mean, you look at some of the other moves. I'm sure the plan all year was to trade Trey Mancini. That seemed to be the plan no matter what. And probably to trade, you know, whichever relievers got hot and got good. But you have to think... If the Orioles were bad, but some of their players were still performing at least similar to the way they were, yeah, they still would have traded Jordan, or they still would have traded Jorge Lopez and Trey Mancini, but I think they would have certainly dealt Jordan Lyles. And I think they would have certainly dealt Anthony Santander and maybe even Rugnet Dor, maybe even Dylan Tate or CNL Perez. But it feels like Mike Elias, you know, I heard kind of set a price on guys like Lyles and Santander because they were important to a winning team. That price wasn't met. And Elias held on to both guys. We'd have to think, if the Orioles were bad this year, Santander is dealt. And Kyle Stowers has been in the big leagues for weeks now, playing in right field. But they had to change the plan a little bit because it was worth it to keep him. And that's what makes this so interesting. Because was he supposed to have a plan for the Orioles to be this good? Yeah, I would think so. But it's pretty shocking. Because... Elias and his team put together this roster, knowing full well they shouldn't have been a winning team. And yet they are. And we'll continue taking a look at some of the other moves and why they kind of fall into line with that theory as well coming up next. But first, got to tell you about BetOnline.net, the fastest and easiest way to check in on all your betting needs. You can find your favorite sports and events at the number one online source for odds, lines, and games. Find reviews and news of every league, including Major League Baseball, but also the NFL, NBA, NHL, combat sports, eSports, and even golf every single weekend. BetOnline continues to be the top online resource for all your sports wagering info from live in-game betting, scores, and podcasts they have you covered. So head to BetOnline today or use your mobile device to learn more about the action happening today at BetOnline, where the game starts. So we're chatting about the Orioles' Shocking everyone with their record this year, including maybe their front office and Mike Elias. And talking about how Elias certainly had a plan going into this year. Not many things were going to get him to deviate from that plan. But you look at more of these moves and maybe that plan is starting to change a little bit. Because you look at a guy like Tyler Nevin, for example, who gets the start against the lefty as the Oriole DH on Monday night and goes 0-2 and then leaves the game for a pinch runner. Did have an RBI on an infield grounder. Jorge Mateo somehow scored on that play. It was ridiculous that he came home with the infield in. Ground ball hit right to the shortstop. Mateo still scores from third. But Tyler Nevins got a 68 WRC+. plus. If the Orioles are a bad team, yeah, Tyler Nevin's on the team all year. He's getting, maybe not every day, but he's getting regular playing time at third base and first base and in the outfield. He's playing against a lot of lefties, and, and you know they're getting him a full look at the major league level after his quick look at the end of last year to see what he can really be. But on a good team, you just can't really have Tyler Nevin. He's not hitting. His defense isn't elite enough to be anywhere. He's not super crazy versatile. And that roster spot can be used better, but the Orioles are kind of playing it Down the middle with Nevin. He's been on the roster most of the year, but he's barely playing at all. He's on the bench most games, and he's not hitting when he does play. You you look at other moves like the Brett Phillips trade. I mean, there's like two ways you can look at a Brett Phillips trade. A, you do it if you're a really bad team. You say... We think we can get Brett Phillips back to what he was at his peak with the Rays. We see that home run power. We can tweak something in the swing. We can get his hitting back. And when you add in his elite defense and his elite base running, he can help our team for years to come. We want to trade for him now while he's available. Or if you're a really good team, you say, you know what? We think Brett Phillips is more valuable than Ryan McKenna as our fourth outfielder. We want to trade for him. He's got this leadership, veteran experience. He can really play defense and run and help us off the bench. We think he's an upgrade over McKenna. But the Orioles kind of did neither. They got Phillips. They've kept McKenna. Phillips still hasn't hit. He's been in the lineup some. He's been a defensive replacement and a pinch runner. But Ryan McKenna clearly outplaying him. But they're both on the team for some reason. So it's another thing about... You know, if the O's are bad, they probably still pick up Phillips, just try to keep him through the year, try to fix him in the offseason, and have him be a fourth outfielder. But Ryan McKenna has maybe surprised the Orioles. And so they're kind of in this middle ground with a guy like Brett Phillips. And I think what a lot of this boils down to, and, you know, this is a hard point to, to make succinct because you don't really know what's going on in the minds of Mike Elias and the rest of this front office, but... It just seems like some of these moves that maybe he's tweaking the plan a little bit. And maybe that can be a good thing long term. Because maybe if he continues to tweak the plan and the Orioles continue to stay in the playoff race, I mean, you remember on deadline day when the Orioles dealt Trey Mancini and then dealt Jorge Lopez, Mike Elias was quoted saying he basically didn't think the Orioles were a playoff caliber team. Well, even since the deadline, the Orioles have continued to win. And Mike Elias has had multiple quotes over the past week. He's basically done a 180. He's you know, talked about how the Orioles are ready for liftoff to spend this offseason. But he's also talked about how he thinks this team is going to be a playoff team this year. He's completely changed, saying he you know, wants to help the team get to the postseason this year. So it kind of makes you think, again, trading Trey Mancini was in the plans basically no matter what this year. And he did it. But you have to think after the backlash of trading Mancini, plus... You know, the way the team has still played well, but the way the clubhouse certainly reacted negatively. Did Elias see that and maybe just change the approach just a little and realize, okay, I can't go out and say that I don't think my team's getting to the playoffs. Maybe I can't necessarily just trade the most beloved players who's our third best hitter as our team is in a playoff race. Maybe there's something that can change here. And right now, with the plan being tweaked a little bit, things are a little bumpy, a little rusty. Maybe the DL Hall, the way they handled it, wasn't the best way. Maybe the Tyler Nevin situation, the Brett Phillips situations are a little weird. Maybe the fact that Kyle Stowers and Gunnar Henderson aren't here yet is a facet of trying to switch that plan when you're in the middle of the season. But maybe, just maybe, what has happened this year between the reaction to Mancini, between this team playing well out above their heads and staying in this race, Maybe it changes things for future years for Mike Elias. Or maybe it just changes things down the stretch this year. And I think we're going to see Kyle Stowers no matter what. But maybe it makes us more likely to see Gunnar Henderson. Or maybe it makes us more likely to see even Grayson Rodriguez in the big leagues once he's healthy again. Because Elias starting to shift and say, well, maybe this team is a playoff team. And I don't think he thought that was possible until the team basically proved it to him on the field. And hopefully, again, I see this could be a positive ending. He sees that this team is better than he ever thought it could have been. And maybe that works out well for the Orioles moving forward. But it certainly worked out well for the O's on the field Monday night with the 7-3 victory. They will go for the series win Tuesday night. Dean Kramer on the hill for the Orioles against Alec Manoa for the Blue Jays. Who, uh, well, the Orioles got to him a little bit in Baltimore last week. Dean Kramer looking to respond from a kind of up-and-down roller coaster start in Boston on Thursday. And then I'll be back with you here on the podcast for a Wednesday episode, of course, recapping Game 2 between the Orioles and the Blue Jays and continuing to talk all things playoff race, all things Orioles. And later in the week, we'll continue to learn more about the Orioles draft picks as well. But again, that's all coming up starting again on tomorrow's episode. But until then, I'm Connor Newcomb. And this has been the Locked On Orioles podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Your team, every day.